You're listening to Keystone Cold Cases, a podcast where we reignite cold cases across Pennsylvania. Hey, it's Chelsea. Hey, it's Sarah. Hey, it's Amanda. And today we are talking about the missing person case of Sherry McGarrow. Um, this case, don't know why I paused. You can just, yeah, the missing case of Sherry McGarrow. We can cut there. All right. On the morning of Monday, February 23rd in 1987, an anonymous caller reported an abandoned vehicle to the west of Maryland State Route 213, which is about two miles south of the Bohemia River Bridge. Police arrived to find a snow-covered vehicle in a field about 200 feet off the road. The area was hit with a blizzard, dumping over 18 inches of snow the previous night. So immediately, the officer assumed that someone had slid off the road or pulled off the road to wait out the snowstorm. Because... Yeah. As a fellow Pennsylvanian, you know how visibility can be when a nor'easter pushes through the area. As the officer stomped through the snow, he started to see clothing scattered around the vehicle, then a purse, and finally some smudges of something red on the left rear door of the car. Obviously, something seemed off about the situation at this point, but it wasn't until he opened the door that he realized just how bad it would be. Police found inside the vehicle, soaked in blood, chunks of hair, and human tissue scattered throughout. The interior was partially burned as if someone tried to conceal what had transpired that fateful night. However, no blood was found outside of the vehicle in the snow. The purse, which was found about 100 yards away, contained several expensive pieces of jewelry, a tube of lipstick, and a driver's license that confirmed the owner of the vehicle was 30-year-old Sherry McGarrow from Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. This is terrifying. Like, I, I mean, initially, I'm picturing everything in my brain relates to a TV show, and I'm picturing... How I Met Your Mother, when Robin and Marshall get snowed in by a plow and they're in the car. But then the rest of the image is just horrifying. Like, it feels to me like someone was waiting for her in the blizzard. I mean, why? Oh, I don't like this. Well, I have a question. I know you started off by saying that this is a missing persons case, but... To me, that sounds more like she's, like, dead, just no body. Or are we getting so, to that? <laughs> we're, we're getting to that. Um, so you'll find out they did not find her, um, and she, to date, has still not been found. But if they are ruling it that it is a murder because given the amount of blood and um, human tissue in, in the vehicle— it is. It was determined no one would be able to survive that type of injury. Gosh. So can I ask another question? So you said that there was no blood found outside of the vehicle in the snow. Was that just like the layer that was there? Like if they dug down, was there, there was like literally none? No. The only blood that they found outside was when the um, left rear door. So. Like smudges. Then I guess my question would it happen before the blizzard? Potentially. I think that's like one of the, the theories of like, did it even happen here or did it happen somewhere else? 
I don't know. They didn't specifically say anywhere if they dug through the entire snow to see if it was like on the bottom. Um, but when they say there was no blood found outside, I'm assuming that there was no blood outside, <laughs> like even on the bottom. Yikes. Yeah. So Sherry McGarrow was a vivacious, outgoing, friendly woman. She taught modeling for a few years after high school and was currently working as an executive secretary for the lottery machine manufacturing company named Data Control Corporation. She had been there for about 10 years and received three letters of accommodation for her work. She married young and had a son before ultimately getting divorced after only three years of marriage. That same year, Sherry met a man that was working at the Delaware Lottery Commission and had been spending a lot of time in Kennedyville, Maryland, where he lived. Sherry had spent the last few days with her boyfriend, Frank Brown Jr., in Kent Point, Maryland, which is also known as Kennedyville, Maryland, and they actually got engaged. She was so excited that she called her mom, Mary, on Saturday night to tell her the good news. She described her plans on selling her home in Pennsylvania and moving to Maryland, but would explain it all when she got home later that weekend. By all accounts, she was happy and in love. Sherry typically would spend three out of the four weekends in the month in Kennedyville and would frequently take her son with her. However, she decided this time not to take him because of the impending weather. So her four-year-old son, Anthony, or Tony for short, was with her mother that weekend. Her routine was to stay overnight Sunday night and drive home early in the morning to work on Monday. And I think we can all remember the days when you would lose sleep to stay with a boyfriend. And I know for sure that I did that when I first met my husband. Oh, yeah. So my question, just like as mom being with somebody who like his father, we had like at a point had separated and we had a custody agreement. So was the father like not in the life after that or would she get like every other weekend just to me sometimes like you don't get a lot of time when you're playing that like custody thing to think that if it was her weekend she'd be with somebody I don't know does that make sense am I making sense yeah you make sense um I don't know what kind of agreement they had. I don't know if it was like a week on week off or, um, if she had him on the weekends and dad had him during the week. I'm not a hundred percent sure it didn't really say like what the arrangement was, um, and how everything was going down at that point. Okay. Well, and if it was like week on week off, she was going down to Maryland three out of the four weekends that potentially would only overlap like one weekend per month with her son if he was, you know, with his dad the other two weekends. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's possible that it was just kind of a split deal or something like that. Yeah, and it seemed like the relationship started pretty fast after they divorced, so it could be that they were just really working that whole situation out, and there wasn't, like, a set anything. So, like I said before, the news stations were reporting this nor'easter with significant heavy wet snow and blizzard-like conditions that was going to last between 8 and 12 hours. That night, Sherry was trying to decide if she should leave before the snow or in the morning. Finally, at 8.40 that night, the snow really started to fall, and she decided to take her chances and travel home to Pennsylvania. 
Sherry called her mom to let her know, and like any mother, she was less than thrilled to hear that she'd be out in that kind of weather. As she hung up the phone, Frank handed her 20 bucks for gas, and she got in her gray four-door 1976 Ford Torino and headed north, not realizing it would be the last time that either of them would speak or see her again. I can't imagine what they carry with them, like her mom and Frank, just knowing, you know, I mean, obviously they couldn't change her actions, and, you know, she's she's a big girl and she made her own choices, but, I man, that would... That would be tough to carry with you. I feel that when, before I had Landon, I would do the dumbest shit in the snow. Like I remember I was working at shit retail places actually where Grace and I met and, um, we had to take 422 and it's a shitty road in the snow. It doesn't really get plowed. And I remember going there for what, for $12 an hour and almost getting in an accident. Like what's the point? And the minute I had Landon, no job ever. Like, I won't do it. Not, not unless there was like an emergency, I'm not leaving this out. Like it just comes down to, I don't know, maybe I'm like freaked out about it, but even if it's like a light snow, not doing it, I don't know. Just because God forbid I were to get in an accident and like Landon, I just, I don't know. I couldn't do it. Not worth it. We used to go to McDonald's in snowstorms and steal the trays and put them underneath our back tires and go tray sliding in our cars. Like we were horrible (laughs) kids in the snow. And I'm sure my parents always worried where we were because we were out in it four wheeling and just doing anything crazy. But no, I know what you mean. Like now that we have Logan, I don't do half the shit that I used to do. I don't even speed like I used to. Gives me anxiety. (laughs) Yep. So with all that snow that fell that night, only about one inch was found underneath her vehicle, which led police to believe that the incident occurred between 1015 and 1045 that night. So just 30 to 60 minutes after she left her fiance's house. Remember that smudge on the left rear door? It actually was determined to be a fragment of her skull. Given, yeah, given the amount of brain matter, blood, and other evidence found in and around the abandoned vehicle, the medical examiner declared her death a homicide even without a body. It was said, quote, any person with that loss of blood and tissue could not have survived the attack. Sherry's cause of death is listed as blunt force trauma, and the type of weapon used to leave such a brutal scene inside the car was not released to the public, so I assume that it might have still been in the vehicle. So a few things to point out, it's unclear if the clothing on the ground was from her body that night or if it was extra clothing since she was staying at her fiance's for a few days. Secondly, the nature of the injuries and the fact that the brain matter and skull fragments were found, yet there was no blood found all around the vehicle outside. I mean, head wounds bleed, like severely bleed. So it makes me jump to the conclusion that this was kind of just a dump site for the vehicle and that her body was placed outside somewhere else. So I was thinking about that too. And I mean, I get nosebleeds all the time and even just like nosebleeds make so much blood. Um, And knowing how much blood comes from a head wound could account for why there was so much there but if that was the case and there's only an inch of snow under the car that puts her death suspiciously close 
to when she left Frank's. And I'm sure this is a theory that we'll dive into later. Um, but that that yes. timing is a little sketch to me. It it's is. a lot sketch, actually. And then lastly, you have the fire that was set in the rear seat, which it was the rear passenger seat. Um, and it burned out before it actually destroyed the car. So it makes me wonder, did they set the fire to try and take the whole car and not leave any evidence? Do we know what side of the car the fuel tank was on? No. I'm just wondering if maybe it was on the driver's side. So they tried to set that uh, seat because you said it was the left rear seat, right? Left, yeah, left rear. Okay. So maybe they tried to light that seat, hoping that it would like get to the fuel tank. That was my kind of assumption. I don't know like how the fuel tank's set up, if it's side or the whole back, or some of them have like access panels underneath the back seat. So yeah. like if the access panel for the fuel pump was right there, that could be another easy source. But typically like the fuel lines and stuff do run up on the path on the driver's side underneath. So um that would make sense. But with the snow and stuff, I would assume that it would even if it did catch fire with the amount of snow that it probably wouldn't have lasted long anyway. Well, and if they set it and then shut the doors, it would burn Start itself out oxygen. anyway. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So with so much snow on the ground, police immediately thought that Sherry probably was close. So they formed a line and shuffled through the snow, hoping to stumble across her body, but they found nothing. Troopers, volunteer firefighters, army personnel from Aberdeen, and even a special team of dogs trained at the Connecticut State Police to find human remains searched the snowdrifts and thickets around the fields. They used infrared cameras, helicopters, and even scuba divers, but again, no signs of Sherry. Police started canvassing the area for details that might help to find some answers of what happened to her that night. They thought the snowstorm would be a big hindrance given the roads were largely deserted at the time, but that didn't take long until they found a few witnesses. Scuba divers? Yeah. So um, if you remember in the beginning, they um, she was really close to a bridge, which is another okay. theory we'll get into. Um, it was close to a river, and so they brought in scuba divers to check the river. Got you. I did not remember that detail. Thank you. That's okay. It's in theory, so we'll go over it. Solid. Um, so the first witness was a carload of men heading south on Route 213 around 10 p.m. They reported seeing a Ford Mustang with Maryland plates in a field with its hazard lights on. They described a man that flagged them down, but when they approached, he denied wanting help. It's like, that's super sketch. Like, why wave them down if you're not? Right. This was only a fifth a mile away from where Sherry was found. The witnesses weren't sure of the year of the the vehicle, but police were able to narrow it down based on the description of the taillights. And so the Ford Mustang could have been between 74 and 78 or an 83 or an 87. And I'll put a photo of like the taillight so you can see like the design that they're talking about. It's basically a set of three on either side with the license plate in the middle. Um, not long after they saw the Mustang, a Maryland state trooper stopped to check out the car, but there was nobody inside around 1 PM or 1 AM. A snowplow driver reported seeing the vehicle driving through, but when they came back through that same area, about a half an hour later, it was gone. Police believe that the Mustang 
was such an important piece of the puzzle to the point that the state trooper that saw the vehicle that night actually submitted to hypnosis and he was able to remember that the Mustang had Maryland plates, but he didn't recall any part of the number. Detectives did check the DMV for vehicles matching the description from all parties, but they found about 5,000 in Cecil County and another 6,000 in Harford County, making it a long shot. Was that even if they uh, narrowed it down to the years specifically listed? I think. I think. Damn. I mean, they said they narrowed it down, so maybe they did more of a broad search and they didn't do the years because they weren't. 100% 100% sure with like the taillights we're we're talking five four five six years worth of mustangs and that was a kind of a big deal back then what about tire marks i know like sometimes like tire marks can also lead to specific like cars and ear mm-hmm. makes right am i wrong i could to be the, wrong it'll not a car person. lead to like the type of tire obviously if like they we're talking about cars and a car in the 70s and this was in the 80s so i'm sure they changed tires by then and it could have they may be able to get the size but i don't know if it would really narrow it down that much and with the snow it does on csi <laughs> Well, of course, because it always goes yeah. much more smoothly when you can script out the story. I don't know that with the snow, you would even be able to get a tire print because if the if the impression was in, I know it was in a field, but then it's snowing and it was a lot of snow. And then by the time it melted, it would just make all of the field soft. So I don't know that you'd even be able to that's true to pull that yeah and like if it was on the side like if it was done at what one it last seen at one thirty in the morning but it snowed for eight to 12 hours and it started at nine o'clock at night then it snowed for a good bit after that so it would have covered it up anyway right this episode of keystone cold cases is sponsored in part by coco counseling center in hershey pa two blocks off of chocolate ave Coco Counseling Center is a Christ-based counseling center specializing in therapy for individuals, couples, and families. Mental health is important to us here at KCC, and great therapists are the first step in seeking treatment for mental health. Coco Counseling Center provides just that. Highly qualified therapists who are real people and who have experienced the real world. For more information about appointments, insurance coverage, and areas of expertise, check out CocoCounselingCenter.com. That's C-O-C-O-A CounselingCenter.com or call 717-298-1366. So immediately police start to theorize that maybe she stopped to help this guy. Could she have stopped to help the mystery man? Was he just there laying in wait? It's kind of odd that you would flag down men, like I said, and then not let them help you. Well, honestly, what if he flagged down the car not knowing who was in it until they got closer? And when he realized that it was men, he's like, ah, no. He's like specifically looking for a woman. Possibly. Or he was like, didn't like the fact that it was a group of people where like, I mean, if I was on the side of the road and a bunch of men stopped, I mean, I'm a woman, but a bunch of people stopped at one time, that would probably make me nervous. Even if it was all women, you know what I mean? Like a whole group versus one person. Yeah. 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 So most of the friends and family don't believe that she would have stopped to help anyone. However, some believe that she would have out of pity, including her mother. So I have to echo crime junkie here. 
be weird, be rude, stay alive. I mean, like sometimes you, you just need to, um, be rude. I mean, to, to protect yourself. And I was listening to a podcast. I think it was morbid, uh, but I forget if it was morbid, but they said something about, you know, if you see someone on the side of the road, don't stop. If you are seriously worried, call AAA for them or, you know, call the police and say, hey, there's a broken down vehicle, you know, at, at this marker or whatever. Um, you don't have to completely ignore someone in need, but um, there are people that are a little bit better equipped to help without putting your safety at risk as well. So for me, I don't stop to help people because I'm worried about like something happening to me by them. I'm more worried about getting hit by another car that is not paying attention and veers off and hits me as I'm trying to help someone. Uh, when I was growing up, my grandmother, she had hit, I guess, a motorcycle person, um, and he was, he was fine, but he got up to help her cause her car had more damage, I guess. And she was like trying to go somewhere and he ended up getting hit after getting hit. Like how unlucky this poor dude is, but I've seen it so many times people get hit because people are swerving. They're not paying attention. I was in a very bad car accident in 2016 and it was like at an intersection, like right in front of a Wawa. I don't know if someone fell asleep while they're driving, but they they claimed they didn't see me. I was going straight and they turned and hit me against a telephone post or a street light. I forget which one. And, um, the police officer got hit. It was raining. It was 5am. It was dark. Someone sped through and hit the police officer and he had to go to the hospital and it freaks me out. I will not stop, but I will call the police like no other and be like, Hey, well, half the time yeah. people on the roads don't even move over for emergency response vehicles that have bright flashing lights so i, I don't want to pull i found out the hard way you're yes. supposed to i got pulled over for that yeah. the guy a cop had someone pulled yep. over i didn't know that was a thing i was like crying it was the first time i got pulled over i was like ah, what did i do he's like you need to get on yeah. the other lane and i was like or oh, if you God. can't get over you need to slow down drastically but i mean people don't even move yeah. over for lights i don't want to pull off in my little Ford Taurus that has no lights and think that I'm going to be safe or that the other person's going to be safe. So yeah, all of that tangent, just to say <laughs> you can call AAA or the police. As a first responder, like scene safety is of utmost importance. And like going back to the whole traffic thing, um, uh, a year ago we lost, um, Tyler Loudenslager on the highway, um, which I knew pretty well and, um, plenty of others. There's a whole four hour class that we take when shutting down traffic and scene safety and all of that. So, um, yeah, if you see someone on the side of the road, obviously don't stop like crime junkie style, don't stop, but right. do call somebody to help. <laughs> um, 
So back to uh, Sherry. So then another thought was that it was a reverse scenario. So that Sherry was having car trouble and fell victim to someone that offered to help her. However, police had the vehicle checked out by a mechanic and they reported that it was in good condition. She had no physical damage. It started fine. It had plenty of fluids, including over seven gallons of gas still in the tank. So could she have just slid off the road? But we're talking about 200 feet into a field. Is that feasible? And looking at Google Maps and Street View, it's a pretty rural area and it's extremely flat. So depending on her speed, I would say that I guess it's possible that she could have. But then again, like, where's the blood evidence in the field? Right. So... Um, another witness reported a man talking to a woman in a car that resembled Sherry, um, Sherry's vehicle. He was described as a white male, approximately 25 to 30 years old and five foot 10 and about 170 pounds. He had dark hair, brown eyes, and a mustache, which is honestly quite an amazing description for someone seeing it in passing during a snowstorm, unless he had stopped for gas. And maybe this is someone that they saw at a gas pump. She did get the $20 from Frank for gas. So maybe that's where this person saw Sherry's vehicle. Do we know where it was witnessed? Like, do we know if it was near a fuel stop? Do we know any? Okay, I didn't think so. No, no. There's this description. I would think there'd have to be some sort of lighting or... I mean, there's got to be something if you can remember that much. I know I've said it before, but like... I'm lucky if I even see a person that's walking on a sidewalk at night because my night vision is horrible. So I, which is why I don't drive at night. Like I can't imagine knowing that they had dark hair, brown eyes, a mustache. I mean, that, that had to be a pretty up close and well lit area. Yeah, I feel like it definitely has to be at the gas station, especially in a snowstorm, a nor'easter. Yeah. Like, there's no way that you saw all of that from the side of the road. Right. So, has to be. So, then back to how you said about the scuba divers. Um, another theory was that the Bohemia River Bridge was being reconstructed at the time, and it was theorized that maybe she was dumped there. Police reported that they thoroughly searched um, this theory and that Captain Larry... Muscle, please tell me I didn't butcher that, released a statement, quote, there were no tire tracks, tire prints, or anything by the bridge. We took dirt samples and grass samples to see if the car was driven in that area, but there wasn't. The construction workers looked the best they could. They said she couldn't have been there. There's lots of theories that go on whenever we do a homicide. You speculate and think what could have happened. If you don't have a body, where is the body? We searched the fields. We searched the woods. We searched the river. We, we had divers in the river. We had divers in by the bridge. We searched the new construction by the bridge all the way down the highway to where the car was until Elkton. So my husband and I like to watch Adventures with Purpose on YouTube a lot. And it's a guy and his crew that do you know diving rescues and recoveries um and he has talked so many times about there will be times he goes out in a certain area and you know he'll search it and he'll use the sonar and he'll dive and someone else will dive and they'll see nothing 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 and then you know two weeks later they have this gut feeling to go back to that same area and they find 
the car or, you know, whatever it was that they were looking for in that area that they'd already searched. So I think that kind of scares me about water because everyone searched, but for all we know, she's in the water there. It just, the way that water moves and sediment moves and, you know, everything can... How murky it is. Yeah. And I'm yeah, sure... I, like... I'm sure your husband has similar experiences from diving rescue. Yeah. I was going to say, my husband's a rescue diver and um, he's like, you know, in the movies how you're diving and then all of a sudden there's like this body or something in front of you. He's like, it's like that all the time. You know, you come up on something because you can't see very far depending on where you are. I, there's no way there is no way. Couldn't do it. So I started listening to a podcast. I want to say it's called something knows some, no, someone knows something. I think that's what it's called or somebody knows something. And they are talking about a case about a little boy that went missing up in Canada. And there's tons of theories that he like got into the water and drowned. And this guy doing this podcast is in contact with these like volunteer search and rescue people. And they went there and it was frozen. And the guy was like trying to make a decision whether it was like, he was like, it's not safe enough to go in, but the, how clear it is when it's frozen. He was like, we would do so much better, which is sad because they were like trying to debate, like how much is it worth sacrificing potentially somebody else's life to find another one? Cause I guess the dogs kept hitting in a spot on the lake or something. And, um, I just, I guess I never thought about that. The silt and the debris and all like the layers and stuff like that. It never really crossed my mind. I guess I never understood it until I had listened to that podcast. It was interesting. Yeah, it can be gross depending on where it is. So, um, the same day that Sherry's vehicle was found, a clerk from a store 45 miles away called the police. He reported a man had come into the store to purchase a TV The man said he was employed at Aberdeen Proving Grounds and was currently on his lunch break. He was living with his new bride in the Sheraton Hotel and was using her credit card for the purchase. He explained that since they got married, she didn't have time to change her name, and that's why it doesn't match. When the card declined, the man quickly left the sales counter, leaving behind the TV and the card. The clerk said the man knew an awful lot about Aberdeen, and he was able to provide a description to the police. He was described as being a white male with a dark complexion in his 20s, about 5 foot 7, 160 pounds with a military style short black hair. He had blue or green eyes. A composite sketch was drawn up but not released for over three weeks in hope that he would try to use another card somewhere else. Police really believe that this man was the prime suspect, stating, quote, it is probable that somebody killed Sherry got rid of the body and the car, drove through a raging snowstorm to Harford County, and then, first thing in the morning, found somebody to buy a hot credit card and then have the buyer use the card right away. Okay, so this credit card is in Sherry's name, but it's just some random dude. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, and they're basically saying, like, how probable is it that this person from Aberdeen, like killed her, got rid of the body, and then drove through this massive snowstorm north to 
another county sold the card to somebody else and too then many coincidences yeah so too it's definitely yeah definitely sketch Authorities went to the base in hopes that they would find the man that was described, but they quickly realized that pretty much everyone has the same haircut and they could pick out 40 guys that look exactly like the sketch. So they had no idea who they were really searching for. Was it a military person? Was it a civilian employee? And they really had no way to narrow down the search. So I wasn't really familiar with Aberdeen and I was kind of curious, but it's a U.S. uh, Army facility that is recognized as one of the world's most important research and development testing and evaluation facilities for military weapons and equipment. And it's supported um, the finest teams of military and civilian scientists, research engineers, technicians, and administrators. So the more you know. Funny story about that. My aunt and uncle used to live near there, and I guess there's like a body of water between like their house and this like facility and like you could like hear or see them testing things it was intense yeah it's definitely crazy that we have something that close but we need it right um apparently so i'll put the photographs of the person that they saw at what we're assuming the gas station and then the person that used the credit card because um I want to know your thoughts on if you think that they look similar, different. So I'm looking at the pictures. Is it the two drawings side by side or is it the drawing and then the mugshot that we have? Not the mugshot, the drawing side by side. Okay. Yeah. The one with like the curly hair and then he has like the hair swoop. I mean, they both have the hair swoop, like just on opposite sides. I like that I'm moving my hand along my forehead as if anyone listening can see what I'm doing. (laughs) Yeah. The eyebrows, too. I mean, you're... Just look at, like, the basic facial structure. Because you can change your hair a little bit. You can, you know, what if he just didn't... But what about the jaw? That is clearly different. One is Same with the noses. I don't know, the... The eyes kind of are similar. Do we know if know. these are uh, like actually drawn sketches or if they are the, you know how you can do like the layering sketches where yeah, like you pick a jaw you. and you pick eyes and because I'm wondering if maybe yeah. that's why some things look so similar. If I'm not I'm not sure. They didn't say. They just said that they had sketches. So I'm assuming that it was drawn and not like which eyes look like they might be theirs. Right. Interesting. I'm excited to uh, see some people's thoughts on that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. In the mid 1980s, one Texas city was gripped in fear. One by one, women were disappearing. They were eventually found, but not the way anyone wanted. From the pages of the reporter's notebook comes an in-depth look at an extraordinary era of fear. We focus on seven cold cases among a long string of murders, and we think we know who the killer was. You'll hear from some of the victims' families and friends and people who worked these cases along with a Pennsylvania expert in the behaviors of serial killers. 
unfortunately with serial killing, the more killing that you see, the more clues that you get at the expense of human life. More than 35 years later, the families are still waiting for proof, still waiting for justice, still waiting for peace. Search for Still from the Reporter's Notebook, wherever you get your podcasts. So two days later, a bloody shirt was found discovered um, about a mile north of where Sherry's abandoned vehicle was. It was a men's large shirt with a 16 and a half inch neck. It was made in Hong Kong and it had no special labeling, something that you could get at any dollar store or Kmart. It was confirmed to have Sherry's blood on the shirt, but we're not sure if it was her actual shirt. Um, I mean, I like to wear my husband's oversized shirts, so Same. it could definitely be hers. Well, my question is, like, didn't they do, like, a thorough search, so obviously it wasn't there before? Like, wouldn't it, wouldn't you think it would have to be someone local? I mean, it sounds like they... To know when... They were really covering ground, and so for it to be a mile north is a little odd that they wouldn't have found it right away. Yeah. I just feel like to know when the searching was done to place it, like, in someone's mind safely without getting discovered... I don't know. I feel like it would have to be someone similar. But the snow. Like, that's what I keep coming back to is, I mean, she had an inch of snow under her car. If something happened and then, you know, there was only an inch on the ground or two inches or three inches on the ground and then it was still snowing for another however many hours. I mean, you might not see it for a couple days. It might not. You know, now as the snow melts, but it would definitely have to melt. Like, did it definitely melt in two days? I guess, like, without knowing weather-wise. Maybe enough that, because the shirt was bloody, so maybe enough that, like, oh, that's all white, and there's red. That shouldn't be red. Oh, there's this ongoing, you know, case, and, you know, maybe it was just melted enough that you could see more of the blood, or, I don't know. I'm just thinking... Snow might have an impact on why it was two days later. It's definitely weird why it was two days later. But um, another thing that was really weird is uh, three months later, a trash cleanup crew found her JCPenney credit card in Whitehall Road, which was about eight miles from where the vehicle was found. And police searched this area and didn't find anything else. It wasn't reported to the public if there were fingerprints on it or given that the cards were thrown on the side of road or the road, it sounds to me more of like an opportunistic thing versus like yeah. someone stole a credit card. But on the flip side, it was snowing and it could have been easy to just find something laying on the road. I don't know. I, so yeah, police, it's weird. <laughs> it is. Police were digging into Sherry's life, and obviously the prime suspect was the ex-husband. Michael, a.k.a. Mike McGarrow, lived in Harrisburg, and he owned a motorcycle repair shop. Immediately, I know what you think. He's like a biker gang or something, but that's not the case with him. Um, The couple had the four-year-old son, Tony, as I mentioned before, and Sherry had full custody at the time, so there's the answer for that. 
They had divorced about a year prior to the murder, and it was described as like a typical divorce, some custody problems, but overall they parted on good terms. Police really looked hard at Mike. They said he was always super cooperative, and he lived 100 miles away from the crime scene. So with her change in plans of leaving the night before instead of the next morning, it seemed unlikely that he would be involved. He even drove from PA to Maryland on two separate occasions to take a lie detector test. He told the captain of the police force, quote, I feel guilty because if we were still together, she wouldn't have gone down there. Now, I wasn't able to find out specifically why they divorced, but I don't think it really matters because police ultimately ruled him out as a suspect. And I actually spoke to a friend of Mike and he confirmed that he was quite the stand-up guy. He didn't have a mean moan in his body, not like... You know, you think biker guy has a, a motorcycle shop. Um, and to his knowledge, Mike didn't own a Ford Mustang. And I tend to believe that because his friend was really, really big into cars at the time that he would definitely know who was like running with what in that area. So, I have to, I have to think too. Yeah. Now, I mean, I know obviously he didn't have Tony, so, you know, he didn't have, you know, his son with him that would prevent it. But he would have had to, I mean, he was a hundred miles away from the crime scene. So what's he going to do? Go down, drive down there, put himself in that location to when, if he wanted to get rid of her, he probably knew a lot more people, um, knew the area better. Like, wouldn't he take advantage of a time she was up here? I mean, obviously he didn't do it, but even the logic behind it is kind of, I'm glad that that he was ruled out and quickly because it none of the pieces line up. Yeah, he would have to sit down there and like wait and hope that she changed her mind or it, it just doesn't make sense. Right. It doesn't make sense to be down there. But we do have the current lover, Frank, and like I mentioned before, he worked at the Delaware Lottery Commission and he was 14 years older than Sherry. They had dated for about 13 months, and from all accounts, Frank loved her son as if he was his own. Sherry told her friends that she liked to stay down there because the Eastern Shore is the kind of place where nobody locks their doors, and it's like a safe area, which would be the kind of place that I would want to raise my kid to. Frank was also very cooperative with the investigation, and, it was, and he was also ruled out as a suspect. I wasn't able to find much about him going forward. He lived a typical life, no criminal record um, that I could find, but that's, you know, all I could really say about him. So over the first several months, the Maryland State Police collected thousands of depositions, evidence reports, photographs, and more of Sherry's case. Police collected fingerprints and blood samples and this instrument that was used in the attack, but police refused to say what it is. The blood was sent to a lab in New York City and compared to Sherry's parents. It came back as 41,891,827 to one match. So it is definitely hers. But something that struck me as really strange was just a few months after her disappearance slash murder, the Morning News in Delaware wrote an article saying that, quote, the car was stripped at the Maryland police lab in Pikesville and the rest was sold for scrap. They said that only evidence that remains is a cardboard file box in a damp basement of the Northeast State Police Barracks. Why would they scrap the car? I mean, there's so much evidence that could be helpful today, like touch DNA. I wonder if 
they knew at that point how how far we would advance in touch DNA. Um, like, I'm sure it was a thought that we would get to that point, but maybe not a thought that we would ever come as far as we have with it. And how, how do you save a, a whole car? I mean, I know we've talked before about um, certain cases where they've gotten rid of just the paperwork because they didn't have places to store just the papers, let alone a car. Yeah, I'm sure there's some place. I mean, obviously they they keep them. I mean, we were talking about going to Tennessee, and I believe Ted, Bu- Ted Bundy's cars in a museum down there. Not that you want to like. I think it's put in, it New in a museum, but yeah, there's. I think it's in there the has to be something. Museum of Death is that what it is in um, New Orleans? Maybe not. I, might be I mean, it'd be cool to see. It just looks like a bug. It used to be in the Crime and Punishment Museum in D.C. But that doesn't exist anymore. It's just a car. It's not that exciting. (laughs) Pretty much, pretty much. But the point is, is that there has to be a place that they can store cars that are of potential evidence. And even if you don't store the whole thing, even if you kept, like, just portions of it that you knew might help later on in the case. Right. Anyway. So there are several postings online that seem to think that Sherry's murder were the work of a serial killer and specifically two stick out. Um, the first one goes by the name, the cannibal. His name is Joseph Roy Metheny. He was a convicted serial killer that self claimed to be active between 1976 and 1996, killing around 13 people. However, Police were only able to find information on his murder starting in 95, and he was only actually convicted of two murders. Joseph has a long history of neglect as a child. His killing spree apparently started when his wife left him for a drug dealer she was banging and took their son with. When That's when he kind of lost his shit. He took an axe to an area under a bridge where drug dealers were known to frequent and allegedly chopped up two homeless men. He apparently killed three other that night, but nothing was found and the case was dropped due to insufficient evidence. Not too long after Joseph reported, he lured crack whores to his trailer near a food stand where he worked. He would murder them, dismember them, and then... Brace yourself. I cut them into meat and put them in Tupperware bowls, then put them in the freezer. I opened up a little open pit beef stand... I had real roast beef and pork sandwiches. They were very good. The human body tastes very similar to pork. If you mix it together, no one can tell the difference. No. No. Hopefully no one ate barbecue from the stand. No. Um, There Um, is a really good podcast that talks about methany on um, Talk Murder to Me. They did an episode about a month ago. And it's if you want to hear more about him, John does a really good job of explaining it, but it's it's graphic. It's bad. It's rough. Yeah. Yeah. So this is when he was obviously dubbed the cannibal. However, it's speculated that Joseph was more of like a shit talker and didn't really commit all these crimes he was boasting about. So Sherry wasn't a, quote, crack whore. And all of the alleged killings were in Baltimore, which was about 80 miles away. So I think we can kind of rule that out. 
if we're rolling it out, why did you subject us to this? (laughs) (laughs) Because it was too good to not subject. Like, it's just completely crazy. That's fair. Completely crazy. That's fair. And I mean, pork sandwiches. I had Mission Barbecue this weekend, and I'll never look at pork sandwiches the same. So the other serial killer um, is the complete opposite. He didn't boast about his victims, and it was believed that he took a lot of secrets to his grave. So um, Stephen Brian Pennell, a.k.a. the Route 40 killer, was Delaware's only known serial killer. He was 31-year-old father of two that just started going on a killing spree for some unknown reason. He was active between 87 and 88, so like one year. And he abducted his victims from Route 40 and Route 13. So for reference, Route 40 runs east to west and goes through Elkton, Maryland, and continues towards the ocean. Route 13 runs perpendicular north and south to the road where Sherry's car was found, and it intersects at Route 40, um, which is about 25 miles northeast. So it's kind of far away from his typical stomping ground. And he typically targeted sex workers, he would torture and mutilate them, and he would carry a so-called rape kit that contained specifically chosen devices used to torture his victims, items such as pliers, a whip, handcuffs, needles, knives, and other types of restraints. His MO often varied. Sometimes he would simply bind his victims by the hands and ankles and then rape them and beat them across the ass with a whip. Other times, he would hit them on the head with a hammer until they're battered and bloody but still alive, and then he would use pliers to squeeze the victim's breasts and cut off their nipples. Yeah. No. Eventually, I know. Eventually, he would show mercy and strangle them to death before bashing in their skulls with a blunt object for good measure. He was convicted of two murders and suspected of killing three more. However, he refused to tell them where the bodies were. It was theorized that he could have been Sherry's killer since he hunted for his victims very close to that area and since his method of killing with a hammer would be consistent with the evidence left in the back of her vehicle. In 1992, Stephen was the first man to be executed in more than 45 years, so without DNA evidence, it appears that we might never know. So, where in relation to, like, where he normally would kill. So looking at route 40 or route 13, is it possible that she would have driven through that area and that the car was possibly dumped where it was found? I know we talked about that before because there's no blood outside. So could she have maybe been in that area and then he you know parked the car there or i mean i guess that still wouldn't line up with his mo like why would he put the car that far out but just kind of thinking of how they could connect maybe she just had to drive that way to get back to harrisburg i mean it's possible i don't know where she stopped for gas and i don't know if this guy i actually didn't even look to see if this guy looked like um match the description or anything but um It seems like it would be a good bit out of the way, but it is interesting enough that that's the way he kills his victims. And so it's kind of hard to roll out when he was active in the same area, in the same time frame, and a lot of the injuries that the other women match. But then immediately I can't help but wonder, how did he get the car there? I mean, obviously he was hiding bodies, but how did he get the car there? 
you know? True. He doesn't Unless he had someone with him. He doesn't look a whole lot like the sketch. Um his face is rounder. His nose kind of looks like the left side of the sketch. Um but eh. I don't know. Yeah, he doesn't it's, it's iffy, doesn't look but it's super definitely I don't think we can possibility. This yeah. 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 So there's one more theory to throw out specifically because um obviously like when you go talk about the boyfriend but this is one that we kind of heard um rumor about so I don't know how much of it is 100% true um but it does sound kind of like a crime of passion to me like if you're going to hit somebody that hard and that many times um so this is based on the information from the public. So there's a theory based that some comments were made that apparently Sherry only went to Maryland that weekend to break up with her boyfriend and that Frank was apparently high up on the ladder. So anything that he did, he'd be able to cover up. Um, he worked for the lottery. So I don't know exactly what you could do to like what type of power he had but my thoughts are beating someone that much would take some force and honestly some anger and if she did if she really did travel down there to break up with him did the murder take place before she left the house he could have driven her far enough away to make it appear like she was on her way out of town when someone in the ford mustang picked him up and then helped hide the body which would account for the lack of blood outside of the vehicle since he would have been 30 to 60 minutes prior to leaving her like lifeless body. I couldn't find any type of criminal history on him, but it obviously doesn't mean that he was involved or was involved based on that information. On the flip side though, her mom reported that she accepted the proposal and that she was happy. So could it just really be the random route 40 killer? I mean, I thought about this and I know like we kind of hinted at it a little bit earlier. Um, just rolling through their relationship. And also the comment that her ex-husband made about, you know, if we were still together, this wouldn't have happened. And so maybe they were working on things or, you know, something along those lines. Um, I mean, the fact that she mentioned the proposal that she was excited um, definitely makes him look a little bit more innocent. Um, it seems like she and her mom are pretty close, so I can't imagine, you know, she's dropping Tony off at her mom's house that weekend. I would think she would tell her mom, like, hey, um, you know, I'm breaking up with Frank this weekend. Um, but it, again, I mean, it could be that it was kind of an ultimatum of, you know, like, things weren't going well, so he proposed, but then you know, maybe later that weekend things were still not going well, or, or I don't know. I don't want to speculate too much into their personal lives, but um, maybe the engagement was kind of like a step forward, but then there were many, many steps back from it. Um, I also wonder if maybe she kind of staged something so she could run away. Um, she made sure that her son was with someone trustworthy because he was with her mom, got engaged right beforehand. So, you know, she it wouldn't seem suspicious, um, but maybe she just really wanted a new start. I don't know that that's super likely, but 
I mean, it could be a good setup for it because you wouldn't suspect it. Gone Girl style? Yeah. I mean, I want to think that because then it means that she's somewhere alive. But honestly, like when they bring up the amount of brain matter, I think that that's really unlikely. Yeah. Unfortunately. And I think too, like we don't know what goes on behind closed doors. So we don't know if like she was being forced to be happy about this engagement or she really genuinely was happy. I think it all just... There's so much speculation. I do kind of tend to lean towards this murderer, this Route 40 killer, because it kind of matches everything, but it was a little bit further away from where he usually hunted. So I don't, I don't know. There's a lot of, I don't know. And I mean, who's to say it has to be that Route 40 killer? I mean, it could very much just be another opportunistic killer that, you know, took advantage of the, the situation and maybe not maybe not Pinnell, but maybe someone else in a yeah, similar I definitely do think that there is another scene somewhere. I don't think it happened yeah. where it was. So I'd agree with that. So in closing, um the first week of the search, Mary, her mother, told Tony, which was her son, that mom was just missing. But after they received word from authorities that she was assumed dead, Mary took Tony to a psychologist who advised that they should tell him the truth. Mary told the morning news, quote, he, meaning Tony, decided he wanted to swing in the front yard. I sat him on, sat him on it and told him, Tony, mommy is hurt really, really bad. Mommy's with Jesus and he's going to take care of her from now. She didn't, he, she didn't go into any details by who or by whom, and Tony just continued to push on the swing. He might not have fully understood at the time what was going on, but he cried at night, Mommy, come back to me. Come back. I, if that doesn't break your heart. I'm going to go cry in the bathtub now. That's, That's just, horrible. I can't that hurts. imagine. For years, Sherry's parents refused to hold a memorial service because they felt that it was like they were giving up and that was something they wouldn't do. They just want her back so that they can bury her and have the peace knowing that she was in the ground back where she lived. Finally, in 1989, not long after a PA judge declared her legally dead, loved ones gathered in remembrance and gave her around her gravestone. Even though she was not there, they felt Tony needed a place to go. A yellow ribbon tied around an oak tree marks the end of their driveway, serving as a daily reminder for the loss of their loved one. Sherry was 30 years old at the time of her disappearance. She was Caucasian, weighed 140 to 160 pounds, stood between 5'3 and 5'4, had brown hair and brown eyes. She was last seen driving a gray four-door Ford 1976 Torino. Friends and family have raised a sizable reward for anyone with information on the whereabouts of Sherry. And if you have any information, you can contact Maryland State Police at 301-398-8101. That's all we have for this episode of Keystone Cold Cases Podcast. Please remember to never reach out to family or friends of the victims. Only to law enforcement if you have any information. This episode was researched and hosted by me, Amanda. Find all our sources, social media connections, and contact information at kccpod.com. 
theme music and production assistance by Darren Makins. Please join us next week for another case to sleuth out.